<clears throat> so some of you probably heard Nate Hubbard threw me under the bus about four weeks ago saying he wanted, he, he wanted to deliver the sermon over here, but it was too edgy, apparently, and it was, would you say seeker-friendly? So he did the thing over here. So, <clears throat> so I thought about doing a sermon on pluralism. To, you know, he did a sermon on particularism, which is Jesus is the only way. So I thought, if, I, if, if I'm going to live, if I'm going to take on the mantle of seeker-friendliness, then I'm going to preach on why the gospel is more of a suggestion, and maybe all roads lead to the same, to Allah, whoever she is, and <laughs> stuff like that. So, so everybody has a thing. Like, we make fun of Wendell for, well, lots of things, but Mostly, like, things that are charming to us, like he's crotchety, right? Or at least he pretends to be. He's actually not. But um, we make fun of Denny because he reads lots of books. I don't know why that's funny, but it seems to... Right. It seems to be funny to a lot of people. And then we make fun of Nate, not because he uses big words, but because he uses words nobody uses. And you have to, like, sit there with a dictionary and a thesaurus. And, um, and of course, nobody makes fun of Ted for obvious reasons. Um, so, so, right, wow. Um, so I asked um, Nate Hubbard, like, why, why, don't you, why don't you come up with something to make fun of Josh Birch? He's like, robots don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> so it would, it would be wasted. Um, all right, that's whatever. So... You had it coming. I, I don't know what to tell you. So <clears throat> we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning. As I don't know if you've been keeping track because it's been a long time. It's been years. It's been months since we've been in Romans, but we've been doing this, this uh, series for years. <clears throat> so I've, I've managed to, with really helpful input from uh, some of the elders and, on that team and, uh, and others, to try to make this... Um, take an approach that would be a little bit more memorable because Romans has a lot of details. We've had a lot of bunny trails to go down. So I'm going to give you a two-part sermon this morning, and you should be able to remember both parts pretty well, I hope. <clears throat> the first part, which is really important that we do this, is we're going to review chapters one through four, partially because it's been a while, but partially because we come on to a new um, area <clears throat> where there's a really significant transition, and one through four by itself has to be understood as a pretty cohesive unit, so I want to make sure you actually could walk away and be able to sort of explain in your own mind or summarize what it's about. So the two-part sermon is the, the whole first <clears throat> four chapters, I think, well, a lot of Romans could be, but especially the first four chapters could be summarized with the phrase or hyphenated word, both and, uh, and you, I'll explain what I mean by that. So as we start the book, like, like all of Paul's letters, he starts with an introduction. And it's one of those things I suppose you could just skip over real quickly, but he uh, says just a lot of things that decades earlier he would have not believed himself. Like he's actually set aside as an apostle for Jesus, obviously whom he was persecuting before, um, that Jews and Gentiles are in fellowship together, and that we're saved by faith, not by work. So, like, nothing he says is like, I mean, we're just used to him saying it, but it's just crazy stuff that he's saying. And this is all to a church that he's never met, and so he, he tells them he longs to see them, he wants to minister to them, and he wants them to minister to him as well. <clears throat> so, what does he want to teach them? This is, I've described this as sort of his thesis statement, a two-part thesis statement of what the whole book of Romans basically is about. And the first... 
uh, in verse 16 there in chapter 1, describes what he wants to talk about, that salvation is for everyone who believes. But, of course, how is that possible? And then you can see the word righteousness shows up four times. Sorry, I can't count. That's awesome. Three times in uh, verse 17. Righteousness from God, that is by faith. And this is definitely uh, an argument he wants to make. Um, One particular scholar put it, it's almost like an overture before a really long orchestra piece. So there's some themes, and you listen for those themes throughout the piece, and then you recognize them when you see them. And when we get to the end of chapter 4, you'll see um, this is exactly where we end up. So Paul is going from these really broad fundamentals onto specifics, and he does it really slowly and methodically because um, he wants to correct any potential misunderstandings that both the Jews and the Gentiles were susceptible to. Um, And what we've covered so far in the first four chapters is he's talked about works, faith, righteousness, and how the law factors into these. And I thought it was helpful, this analogy where If this is where Paul thinks they should be going, you can think of a boat going off course. So if they're off course, if you do one course correction, that might be helpful, but of course there's always a chance of overcorrecting and then you got to bring them back in this direction and uh, after however many course corrections you end up back where you're supposed to be. And he's just doing this again and again and again in the book. He makes, Paul makes, is notorious for making lots and lots of bold statements. And so they can all be in isolation, very, very much misunderstood and therefore, you know, misapplied. There's a lot of nuance in his point, so he goes on to explain them really well, but sometimes it isn't until like three chapters later, and that's one of the things that makes Romans obviously really hard to read. So his main points so far in chapter 1, he mostly directs it at Gentiles, talking about the general revelation, that is, that God is evident in creation, that we have a conscience and we need to respond accordingly. And then chapter 1, if if you remember reading chapter 1, it it closes out very dramatically with what happens if we don't respond accordingly. In chapter 2, instead of congratulating the Jews, he's uh, pretty hard on them. Um, And he uh, aims uh, an invective at them for, you can't just have the law and therefore be good enough. In fact, you're more responsible because you have specific and better revelation. So he really takes them to task on that um, and the degree of accountability they would be held to. So in both scenarios, men and women are not held guiltless uh, if they close their hearts and their mind to whatever revelation God has given them. it's, uh, their works are going to be judged uh, irrespective of that, but it will be relative to what they know. And so uh, this is a very, very important part of Romans. So I'm going to read just a few passages to review that specific emphasis that he makes. In uh, chapter 2, verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he's done. And then this is a 7 was a verse that Nate had pointed out in his sermon a few weeks back. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. So obviously keeping in mind Paul's in the middle of his argument, you wouldn't want to pull this out of context and build an entire theology on that. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. But it's not like he just has a few verses. He goes on more specifically Uh, zooming ahead to verse uh, 14. Indeed, when the Gentiles do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Again, very, very specific. It's clear what he's saying. The fact that a person can comply to God's written law, written on his or her heart, and in this way satisfy the law in a meaningful sense, uh, speaks not only to the importance of our actions, but our attitudes as well. And, that, and we all innately know this, the fact that we're capable and expected to respond according to our ability. Um, I even just as an extra biblical source, Plutarch was a, a Platonic philosopher, and so he wouldn't have had a very high view of human capacity, to, per se, spiritually speaking. And this is a quote of his law, which is not written on papyrus scrolls or wooden tablets, is his own reason within the soul, which perpetually dwells with him and guards him and never leaves the soul bereft of leadership. So even someone like him would say that there's something there of substance that we can respond to and are responsible for. We're not just aimless and completely, um, well, anyway. So Paul concludes this section, again, he's st staying on the same topic, uh, reminding them that a judgment will take uh, place in time in the future. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So he makes a really uh, big, big deal out of that. And of course, while this is essential to his case, it would be a mistake to stop reading Romans there. We would, it would be a, 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 we'd be full of misunderstandings. So he moves on into chapter 2 and then into chapter 3. He assures them that this doesn't mean that the law had no point and that the ch God's chosen people aren't special to him. They are, but perhaps not in the way they may have thought. For example, in chapter 3, um, you may remember going over this with verse 1 and verse 9. Maybe not. It's been a while. What advantage, then, is there being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. Now, he only follows it up with one reason. Probably we'll get back to it later in the letter. But he qualifies everything he says in verse 9 saying, okay, yeah, there's a lot of advantages, but Jews and Gentiles alike still all are all under sin. So he's kind of going back and forth with this. Uh, so it's this and this. It's both. We have to hold these things in tension. Um, and then we finally arrive, you may remember, at the end there, close to the end of the chapter, at the very sobering conclusion, the very important conclusion, therefore no one will be declared righteous, no one, in God's sight by works of the law. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very heavy verse. Um, you may remember this picture. This is kind of like where we're at in the book. Like he, he gives them some teachings, some good news in the sense that, hey, you know, you'll be held responsible for your actions, let's, let's shape up. But, but again, he's been, we've been on the way down and finally it almost is like we have no hope at this point. Uh, in the way, this is a, a guy's book. I, I picked up this, actually, I took it out of Josh Miles' office. This, uh, this guy, John A.T. Robinson, he was um, a dean of Trinity College in Cambridge uh, for a time. Uh, a really neat guy. He's a little bit of a liberal scholar, but he, he had a lot of really good things to say about Romans, and I like what he said here. Not only is this a dogmatic claim by Paul, but one could say it's axiomatic. In other words, yeah, it's a strong religious statement, but it's more like it's just an indisputable fact about the world. And I think, I think he's right. That is a conclusion that we all come to, that we know that we all fall short of the law. So the problem is then, obviously, what are we supposed to make of this, right? Uh, Paul's made an argument that everyone is held responsible to respond to the knowledge that God's exposed them to, and that their choices are real and meaningful. But here, of course, he's saying at the same time, the very nature of the law requires deeds 
for guilt to be removed, and it's conclusively shown that we're going to come up short, we all sin, we all fall short, and therefore we're all condemned, because we are literally, and Sean Meyer knows I don't use that word lightly, we are literally incapable of accessing salvation through the law. So the question becomes, is Paul contradicting himself here? Is he perhaps, was he just being hyperbolic or even, as, as some might say, sarcastic in everything that he was saying? Like, how ridiculous is that? Um, in his presentation of what men and women are actually able to do and responsible for. So the way I want to, as we get close to wrapping up the review, the way I want to think of this is rather than assuming that it must be one or the other, to do the text justice, which is quite a bit of work, we have to do our best to deal with the best, uh, do the, the best we can with the tension that's in the passage with this, again, this idea of it's both and. It isn't just uh, one or the other. Right? So rather than conclude that verse 20 contradicts uh, or cancels out everything Paul has said up to now, we have to think of it as it's informing or filling out his teaching. Everything that he said so far, it's complementing it. While there is real value in responding rightly to what we know, at the same time, as it says here, there is no, there is no unrighteous, right? So to understand how, which is the key, of course, how Paul sees coherence in this relationship, and to wrap up our review of the first four chapters, we have to understand what he means by righteous or righteousness, because it's a central theme in his argument. As he moves on to the good news in the next couple verses, like right away, back-to-back verses, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So this is justification, right? This is uh, not by the law, but by faith. And while this is actually the most dramatic statement he's really made in the book, you can see if you look back at verse 17 in chapter 1, it's exactly where he said he was taking us all along. So he's really tried to do everything he can to bolster his case for righteousness, okay? And then he moves on in up through chapter 4, using the example of Abraham, who even prior to the law believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this pulls the law argument out of the equation, so to say. So just to talk about briefly about righteousness, I'm going to skip all the Greek stuff. I'm not very good at that anyway. Righteous or righteousness. And when Paul, by the way, quotes the Old Testament, he does use the Greek form of the Old Testament, which helps us do a pretty decent comparison of those things. Righteousness, we tend to think of it basically, it's actually got a pretty wide and varied meaning, not just jumping from the Old to the New Testament, but even in the New Testament. So obviously righteous can mean like a virtuous type of righteousness, morally upright. It could refer to conduct or righteous deeds. And then it can also, as it often does in Paul's writing, even though the words justification looks nothing like righteousness, that's exactly what it means, pronounced or treated as righteous which is obviously a very important concept. Not surprisingly, probably, uh, Jewish rabbis would tend to think of the second one, you know, right conduct, righteousness, is conformity to the law. That was, of course, uh, largely how they thought. So, but what I think happens, at least for me, maybe this isn't true for you, but I think we tend to think of God's righteousness really similar to kind of his holiness. Like these are moral and pious and maybe even abstract terms, but it's, I think, very helpful to think of it as uh, the righteousness of God as his ability to carry out his actions completely and perfectly. It is actually a very practical 
concept. Um, so this leads to the seemingly radical idea that God exercising his justice and his wrath aren't just necessary things, they're actually good things, even if we have a hard time uh, reconciling that. And we have to remember that in the Old Testament, both parties in a covenant, for example, are considered essential. Isaiah writes frequently about this. He mentions individual and national righteousness as being important for Israel's delivery, right? I mean, we all know that if you've read the Old Testament. But at the same time, this is also depends on the righteousness of Yahweh. None of that other stuff would make any difference if there wasn't a righteous God to depend on. So the point is, there's two active parties. And so again, it gets back to this idea, it's both and. It doesn't have to be one or the other. We see this in Romans 4. If in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but, an ob- but as an obligation. However, to the one who doesn't work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, their faith is credited as righteousness. So what it says is to believe and exercise faith is stated clearly and in multiple ways so as to not be misrepresented, not a work. No one contributes to their salvation, rather trusting God is a reasonable and you might say deferential response to the evidence. Um, And I love, it's kind of a parallel verse that I just really love in Hebrews 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This fits perfectly with what we've been talking about Of course, there's a question, is Abraham just a special case? How would this even apply to the reader? Because we're removed from him and he's different and he's, you know, uh, a vaunted character. We just think of him as high and lofty. But we read in verse uh, 23 here, it was credited to him. We're written not just for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. So this is just his amazing but really simple conclusion. Those who respond to the gospel are considered children of the promise and are justified by this same faith. That's exactly what he's saying. We can't work for it, but we can, and in fact, we must respond to the light that we've been afforded. This actually glorifies God. This doesn't give us uh, any credit at all. He closes with a verse that we say together often. It's not germane to my conclusion, but I thought Wendell would be disappointed because it's it's such a great verse. If, we, if I didn't read it. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And this actually concludes his teaching on the first four chapters of what justification is. Now, just so you know, that is like half the sermon, so it's not, it's not, that wasn't the uh, five-minute warm-up or anything like that. That was a lot of material to cover. Um, but I think looking at all that and holding it all in tension and realizing as we move into chapters five through eight that um, Paul's not remotely done with his argument, and we just have to kind of be a little bit patient in that way. So, if all this is true, what does this look like for the believer? That's what we find when we move into chapter 5. So we'll tackle the first 11 verses today, and then the next 10 next week. (laughs) They're really different topics, which which is perfect, actually. As you see a lot in Romans, he says, therefore, and of course, you always got to ask what it refers to, and sometimes there seems to be confusion over these things, but in this case, it seems uh, pretty evident what what he's pointing to. I'm going to get to that um, in a minute, but when you read um, 
any translation of the Bible. I remember being very confused by this when I got my first study Bible. If you read the NIV, these are the headings for these 11 verses, peace and joy. The word joy doesn't even show up, so I was very confused. And then peace and hope, which are fine, but there's so much going on. You know, anytime the, the writers choose to, to put subject headings that, of course, aren't really there, they're obviously trying to be helpful, but in, in some cases it may not be helpful. Um, some, like we've got the ESV on the first one here, I think, some translators think it's most important to point out the continuation of the theme of faith by these words, peace with God through faith, faith brings joy, faith triumphs. Some translations think the guarantee that we have is more important. So like this, this has got to be the most important thing in these 11 verses, assurance, we're free from God's wrath, we're fine. But, you know, anytime you do that, you, you point out some words at the expense of others. That's just kind of how it works, right? So the NASB, I, I think, does a great job with just the title, if you have to have titles, Results of Justification. And the NET is my favorite. It just says the expectation of justification. Like, we, we can expect these things to happen because we've been justified. That, I think, clearly makes the most sense in these 11 verses. But that's just my, my opinion. Um, one thing before I, I, I read through this is I want to point out the word we. It seems like a tiny, well, it's literally a tiny word, but um, it shows up 16 times in these 11 verses. So anybody have a guess why we is important here? What's we been up till now? Anybody have a guess? When Paul says we, he means the Jews, the Jews right. But now all of a sudden, in context, so we're not abusing our pronouns here, um, we means all believers. So it's a, it's a considerable difference in, in emphasis, and you don't pay attention to that, that, that's obviously kind of important. So since I have to read this, I wish I didn't have to, but so he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, per perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, very rarely. And I'm going to talk about this. I don't think this is right here, but very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. <clears throat> but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, so that's a lot to process, so I'm not going to explain it all, per se, because he goes through and explains all these things over the course of chapters 5 through 8, so we've got plenty of time to, to get into some of the nitty-gritty. My goal today, actually, only <clears throat> is to look at the, some of the new words he uses and why he uses them. You know, what's the real meaning behind them, and that, that's so we ho hopefully have a modest thing, a modest... Uh, amount of work to do here. D.A. Carson, I liked what he said. He sums up this passage where he says, or it's just a comment he made really on it. It says, there are larger realities than the law at work here. And I think that's, that's a very, very true statement. So <clears throat> as we move into verse 1, 
Uh, just going to highlight the words as we go through them. Through is just another one of those words that might seem worth skipping, and it's, it's not very, uh, doesn't seem very important, right? Justified through faith. Like, it's just such a, a, a seemingly innocuous word. Um, so through, though, in this case, is actually important because it has to do with it's by means of faith. We're justified by means of faith. So inter- uh, translators then do a lot of different things with that. And, and, and it, it kind of goes along with their understanding of the relationship of faith and justified. So it could be justified by faith. That's very, very common on the principle of faith as the result of faith. It's a little stronger statement there, right? Through his faithfulness combined with our faith, that refers to some stuff earlier in the book where it's not clear what subject or object of faith is being referred to, and they really wanted to emphasize both parts of that relationship. We've been made right with God by our faith, which is even a stronger statement, and the strongest one I could find um, seemingly had real specific ideas here. We've been made right with God because of our faith, which sounds a bit, hmm, I don't know. But anyway, it's a, so the, the through, like in the NIV, is, is a bit uh, vague, but, but perhaps a little bit safe, right? But easy to overlook. Uh, we have peace with God. Now, Wendell told me not to talk about this, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. I mean, it was, it was great advice. No, I, I'm not throwing you under the bus. I mean, I'm just, I'm apologizing. Yeah, so um, Wendell did a couple, few weeks ago, it was three weeks ago, he talked about textual criticism and that you could have little notes in the bottom of your Bible. Well, this is one of the most famous ones that I'm aware of in the Bible. Uh, it says, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But many, in fact, most manuscripts uh, the handwritten ones say, let, let us have peace. So if many or most of them say that, why isn't it actually the preferred reading? And it's, it's just kind of a really interesting case. Uh, by the way, let us have peace would be like in Philippians 4, 7, sort of an experiential inner, inner peace, which is a very good way to think of peace, but doesn't actually fit here very well. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay, so um, the, the thing is, the, so the majority of manuscript evidence would say this is the way to read it, but the oldest manuscripts say the original, what, what's in the, the text there, we have peace. Um, and the two very oldest one actually have uh, corrections written on them. So, you know, is it Omicron or, or is it Omega? And it's, you know, the capital and the lowercase O. Not only do those sound a not only do they look a lot alike, but when you say them, apparently, again, I'm not Greek, I don't really know, but I've been told, they sound very similar. And we know from chapter 16, Paul was, was you know, dictating this to Tertius. So it's like, did, did something get a little confused along the way? Again, it doesn't seem like a, a major difference. And of course, both of these concepts, the, the fact of peace and the feeling of peace, are supported elsewhere in Scripture. So like Wendell said, it doesn't end up being a, a doctrinal problem, but a lot, a lot of time and ink has gone into trying to figure out what's being said here. So the, 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 the tiebreaker is, in the context, the first meaning clearly makes sense, and that, the, the other reason I'm pointing that out is, is because that's what we're going to see in all the words that we study. It all has to do with the fact of something that we know giving us peace for the future. That's, that's the whole point of this passage. Um, <clears throat> so like the, this study Bible, you know, the study Bibles write their commentary based on the, the way it's been translated. This is not some sort of inner experience of harmony, but the objective fact of a new relationship with God in the Bible. Peace often describes the total blessing of salvation, which might not be the first way that we would think of that. Anyway, I found that all very interesting anyway. 
So a lot of these words, like we have peace, have this, uh, this is our, our second phrase. So you've got both and, that's the first four chapters, and in this, this, 11, this set of 11 verses, the idea of already but not yet is really, really rather important. We have something now, but it's going to be fuller and better later. And that is, of course, um, in this case so far, like we've said, is peace. <clears throat> a, a good way to articulate this idea is in First John, dear friends, we, we, now we are, I added the italics, obviously, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. So it's just kind of that idea. Moving on to verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace. I had heard often like gained access kind of goes back to the curtain analogy in the temple, but it seemed like a better way to describe it was it was something where, not, not that that's necessarily incorrect, but something where we needed an actual introduction like royal chamber personal private royal chambers would almost be a better example where you had to be invited into that space that that would have been obviously previously off limits. And not just that, but were actually welcomed in with open arms warmly. Um, Into this grace in which we now stand, uh, the way Doug Moo put this, grace describes the free, unconstrained manner in which God acts towards his creatures. In other words, Grace is a pretty broad word. It always feels really almost uh, like generic. Like it's clearly positive, but it's like, what, what exactly does it mean? So I came up with this analogy. At least I found it helpful, assuming it's accurate. Um, <clears throat> like if you uh, describe somebody as a gracious host, you know, that wouldn't necessarily point to any one particular thing they did. It might just be that, oh, they were warm and welcoming. They had us in. They engaged with us. They fed us food, uh, all this stuff. You know, it's sort of like it's the whole package of uh, a generous demeanor. And so grace, a lot of these things we'll talk about is under the umbrella of grace, you might say. And then the word boast. Uh, This is actually the reason I went. I've been using the 1984 NIV. I switched to 2011 just because I thought that word was way better here. Like the English word here is like exalt with a U. I mean, nobody talks that way, so I'm not going to use that word. But uh, in the 84 NIV says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which makes perfect sense. But boasting has a sense of confidence that he's trying to convey here. And boast uh, does two things. It, It shows confidence. And then the other thing that it does He's using this word in contrast, I don't know if you remember, but he's used boast, boast three times before, and it's always negative and, and self-serving. So you need like, you know, they boasted, or, or um, boast in the human sense obviously can typically mean bragging and would have, therefore, a pejorative connotation. Thank you, Nate. Ne- that's negative. Um, so the believer no longer brags in his or her own accomplishments. The whole point is, uh, it's like how Paul says elsewhere, between glorying in the flesh and glorying in the Lord. Um, and when he uses this contrast, he's sort of saying people are going to fit into one of these two camps, which I think is kind of part of the point he's making here. Continuing with this theme, we have hope of the glory of God. And uh, hope, this is a really cool word, um, is a sense of confidence based on the fact of justification. So just like he said, we have peace, he's saying we have hope. And uh, ironically, I mean, I don't know, what do you think of when, if people say hope? I, what? A wish, a wish. I think of the Obama poster, unfortunately. I mean, that's all I can think of. Wasn't that just, just hope, right? I'm not, not, sorry, I didn't mean anything by that, but that's just what I think of. And 
People think of wish, they think of optimism. So if it's wishful thinking, then we miss the point of what he's saying here. The whole reason that Paul uses the word hope is that he's talking about a degree of certitude. He's talking about certainty of things, and then the way we read hope, it almost implies doubt, and that is far from the point that he's trying to make here. Um, just like in, I, I thought I just couldn't help myself from going back because I never talked about this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believe. Again, this sounds like some sort of empty-headed or uh, unfounded faith that, of course, people would rightly deride Christians for. These, like, what does this mean? He, against all hope, he in hope believed anyway. Like, it just sounds, you know, rather foolish. But, <clears throat> so there's a passage in Ephesians 2 that Paul describes the people there as without, without hope and without God in the world. Well, I'm sure you don't remember what a, con- anybody remember what a contrapositive is? Contrapositive? No. So it's the opposite meaning in the opposite order. So if we're without hope and without God in the world, since Abraham was with God and he had God, he was not, yeah, he was not without hope. He, he, had, with, he had hope, which makes perfect sense in this context. So we have to understand what they mean by these words. And it's, of course, even more true for us because Abraham had very little to go on and we have the evidence of the resurrection and likewise. Like it says in 2 Corinthians, uh, just for the phrase glory of God, just wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed, being transformed, that's exactly the theme here, uh, ongoing change into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. So we've been changed, we've been justified, but that's not the end goal, and all of this stuff is still going on. All right, verses 3 and 4, we'll speed up here a little bit. Not only so, um, Paul uses this a lot. I think he's, he uses this, is it verse 11 later? Uh, not only is this so, he uses this when he's building one argument upon another one. Not only this is the so is especially relevant here, but we glory in our sufferings. He's saying, like, all that's true, but not only is that so, but this, which would be much more difficult. It's one thing to glory, you know, in, or, or to have hope in the future glory of spending eternity with the Lord, but to boast or glory or rejoice in your sufferings, obviously, on the face of it, sounds a little bit ridiculous, right? Uh, <clears throat> future glory. Okay. So, maintaining that attitude, not just... Uh, that we would be without despair, but how do we hold up during affliction? Um, sufferings, by the way, I was just talking to Wendell about this this morning, or maybe it was Denny, I don't remember. Suffering seems to mean the hardship brought on by living out someone's faith. You, you suffer for doing good, but others believe, for example, that suffering could be the everyday real sorrows of life, that those are still meaningful, the Lord knows those are still meaningful to us. In either case, the point is that we persevere through them. And perseverance doesn't describe just survival, but it's this sort of positive, proactive action against adversity, right? We don't just passively accept it and try to survive, but we, we endure through it. Um, this inevitably, of course, produces character. That's the quality of having stood the test. So you can think of that as the difference between like an army veteran and uh, a new recruit, somebody who has steadfast uh, endurance, obviously this would result in a change of integrity or strength of character that wasn't there before. And all of this all serves to perpetuate even more hope, that in affliction, believers won't just not despair, but they can actually grow. I mean, that's just the strangest thing about that, is that conflict 
and trials can actually work for the believer rather than against them, which is, again, uh, very, very counterintuitive. And it's, again, only true because of the certainty of these things. If we didn't have the certainty, then, again, this would all be wishful thinking. In verse 5, hope does not disappoint us, and hope does not put us to shame. I went to 1984. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who, he's, who has been given to us. Obviously, a, a fantastic verse. Um, what's neat about this is that believer's hope is not, the phrase here is, subject to embarrassment in light of the evidence of God's love. So the fact that hope doesn't bring shame is the idea that we can probably all relate to. Like if you, you know, you've put something out there, you've, uh, the, the way this commentary put it, I, I like it, it's probably a little technical. It says, when you've ex- publicly expressed expectations that end up unrealized, right? Like, so you've said that thing, whether it's bragging or not, you know, it might just be about a job, it might be something else, and then it doesn't happen, and everybody knew it was supposed to happen, and you're like, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's very awkward. Um, it's that kind of thing, that this can't happen in this case. What's key here, obviously, is how Paul anchors it in God's love for his people, and he uses the word, it's been poured out. That might make you think of in... The first John 3, lavishly, the, the Father's love has been lavishly given to us, <clears throat> not marginally, not the bare minimum, which would seemingly be more appropriate for undeserving people. I also, by the way, like this, um, this passage in First John 4 splits up the idea in Romans. Love, that's just kind of coming into focus here now, the first 11 verses, chap, sorry, chapters in Romans talk about God's love for us, and then when Romans in chapter 12 starts turning more towards application stuff, then the focus of love is more outward. And so you could think of that as a really, really rough outline of Romans. Not, not, but only for love is it helpful. Um, <clears throat> this also actually reminded me of how the images of the Christ's work um, are typically like, you know, he washes us or cleans us or makes us a new creature. And then when uh, the imagery associated with the Holy Spirit tends to be more, you know, sustaining. Um, um, what are the words I have here? Um, lost my spot. He fills us, dwells in us, or in this case is poured out. It has more of a, what, I'm not sure what I think of this, but one commentator talked about it being more of an idea of being irrigated rather than washed. And I not sure that's not a stretch necessarily, but, but the idea that the Holy Spirit continues with us, uh, and of course this is explicit reference to the Holy Spirit. So, as I mentioned when I was reading it, I'm going to switch to a different translation that I really like. This is a translation produced, I think, in Scotland in 1946, because it's the year my dad was born. And they didn't get the New Testament. They wanted to get the Bible in the common language, and the New Testament was finally put out in the 60s, and then the Old Testament was put out in the 1970s. It's a real interesting story behind it. But this particular translation does two things really, really well. It's a very pretty set of verses, and uh, I became convinced anyway in, in verse 7 as I read this, pay attention, that there's a contrast being made that Paul isn't necessarily repeating himself twice. So, in verse 6, For at the very time when we were still powerless, then Christ died for the wicked. Even for a just man, one of us would hardly die. I mean, like we won't. Though, perhaps, concedes the point, maybe for a good man, one might actually brave death. But Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that is God's own proof 
of his love towards us. So that particular translation, I think, does a, a lot of things very well as far as um, expressing the sentiment. Um, here's how, this is, this, is, this is a lot of words. I'm going to read this twice. This is a cautiously worded statement about the unprecedented nature of Christ's death for the unrighteous and undeserving. That's a lot of big words, so I'm going to read that again. This is a cautiously worded statement about the unprecedented nature of Christ's death for the unrighteous and undeserving. So Paul's arguments are a lot of times like this. It's full of a lot of contrasts, and then he sets it against a greater theological reality, and then all of a sudden you get this great uh, profound context in which you can understand these great truths. One more aside, because I, I just couldn't help myself, because it's Denny's fault. He talked about the Romans Road last week. So, uh, in the Romans Road, this actually confused me for some time. If you read through at least this version of the Romans Road, <clears throat> the Romans passages that show you the gospel are very out of order. And, you know, you got to wonder, like, why, why is it like that? It seems a little bit strange. Okay? So, the way the Romans Road the way the gospel presentation would, I'm just going to sum up the verses here. For all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, but Christ died for us so that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, heart and mind, you will be saved. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. That's the logical argument of the gospel. So what in the world is going on here? Well, it just shows you Paul's argument is all here for a different reason. So people have been often confused by Romans because the Christology in it is just, it's, it's a little bit scattered and all over the place. But Paul, it just at least, if nothing else, makes it very clear that Paul's goal here is to present different information. He's trying to, again, bring the law into it and then argue how does faith uh, compare with works and, and things like that. So the Romans road would look more like that. It would just be kind of all over the place. It's an S-curve. Nate would call that a chicane just so you know, different word. So, wrapping up here, verses 9, 10, and 11. And as I read this, just look for the parallels in verses 9 and 10. That's actually pretty powerful. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've been, now received reconciliation. So, not, verses 9 and 10, like I said, are parallel. There's a lot of parallel words, obviously very, very intentional. These are, the how much more is called an a fortiori argument. I assume that's Latin. Fort, strength, third, yeah. So, he's arguing what's called from the greater to the lesser. So, let me read this very carefully. If, when we were, because this needs to make sense, because this is a really important point. If, when we were still God's enemies, he acted to justify us by Christ's death, which objectively seems unthinkable and objectionable, then, if then statement, okay, if that's true, then now that we've been welcomed in and accepted as righteous, he will certainly not fail to save us from God's wrath in the final judgment. So the argument here is the improbable or impossible has happened, making it easy to believe the probable. That's his, that's his whole point. If he's done this, well, then of course we will be fine. Of course we'll continue to grow. If he would do all this and has given this to us, the, the rest of this is almost small potatoes. I probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't say it that way. But again, this emphasizes the idea of what's already happened, but much of it has yet to happen. 
in verse 10, how much more? Sorry, that was the a fortiori argument. So the word reconciled is finally introduced. Paul doesn't use this word a whole lot, but sometimes he juxtaposes it against justified to kind of fill out the picture. You may remember justified, remember, as being declared righteous, is more like legal language, and it talks about our standing with God. But reconciliation is a political or a relational word, and it has more to do with, you could think of it as a cessation of hostilities or peace after a period of war, which actually fits the charge that we were once God's enemies. So there are two things in the use of the word reconciliation that would have stood out especially poignant to the original reader. First of all, reconciliation probably would have been man trying to reconcile themselves to God, us coming to him, trying to appease them, trying to appease the deity, whoever that might be, right? Not the deity taking the initiative. So that already would be wildly different. And secondly, as is seen here twice, the excessive cost, right? In verse 9, the instrument... Uh, of justification is his blood, but in verse 10, it takes on these intimate words of the death of his son, right? It's not humans offering the lives of women and children to appease an angry God, you know, throwing them in the volcano, but it's a rightfully angry God, nonetheless, offering peace at his own great expense. And I was, I was telling Carrie Warren, if I had time to talk about C.S. Lewis and the idea of the true myth and how this is nuts and how this affected him in helping him to become a believer. But I don't have time to do that, so that's okay. So the point is, the fact is, we're not begrudgingly saved, but we're generously saved. And um, it is not meagerly done. It was proactive. In verse 11, to wrap up here, Paul comes full circle to boasting again. Again, this is just rejoicing in confidence for all the reasons that he's listed in the previous 10 verses. Each word is not, again, just a reminder of what we have now, but it's what we have in the future. That's the whole point and cornerstone of justification, sorry, not justification, sanctification in the future, right? This is summarized really well in Philippians. I had to read this verse. 1 Philippians 1, 6, sorry, 1 Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, um, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the, to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's probably just the best verse I think there is for sanctification and summarizes a lot of what Paul is trying to save here, say here. So the point is, of course, that we aren't just saved, we're being saved, right? It's this, again, already but not yet idea. God's loving action is actually seen in real past events which secure the believer's hope now into the future, into maturity, and ultimately someday to experience uh, all of these things in full. We're just going to close with another quote by this gentleman because it was, I thought, very fitting. The whole Christian life is built upon the pattern of become what you are, right? Become what you are. All things are yours. All is to be made yours in Christ. And so next week, the second half of chapter 5. So feel free to read ahead. Uh, Guy Platter also had a uh, two-part sermon series on original sin back in July. That could be worth brushing up on because I'm going to largely skip it. We're going to close with a verse from Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us.
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Go in peace.